0: Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. The following is a reconstruction of the text in light of new scholarship. Textual critic Elizabeth Schrader offers this contextual note. This reconstruction comes from readings in Codex Alexandrinus, before correction, John 11, 1, 2. Papyrus 66, before correction, John 11, 3, 4. And Codex Calbertinus, John 11:5, which is uncorrected. There was a certain sick man, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, his sister. Now this was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore Mary sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, the one you love is sick. But when Jesus heard, he said to her, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Lazarus and his sister.
1: Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and it is a joy to be with you this morning as we celebrate uh, Mary Magdalene. Uh, it is close to uh, the feast time of, of Mary Magdalene. That's July 22nd, and I took uh, an invitation to, to follow Mary Magdalene and to dwell uh, on her witness, partly because, you know, some of you may remember I was gone a couple weeks ago, You could be forgiven, my face was really big on that screen. Uh, But I actually wasn't here, because I was at the Wild Goose Festival in North Carolina. I'm listening to lots of progressive Christian leaders and scholars talk about all kinds of things. And one of the important thinkers in that space is a woman named Diana Butler Bass. And Diana Butler Bass preached what is now a quite famous sermon the previous year at Wild Goose, wild goose, about Mary Magdalene. And she did some follow-up work and dwelling in some new scholarship. um, I was able to just really steep myself in the witness of Mary Magdalene. And so when I came back and we finished up our Lies series, and I looked at Will Gaffney's lectionary and saw that we had fallen just around the time of the Feast of Mary Magdalene, it felt like a prophetic invitation to sit with Mary. Now you may have noticed there are some differences between those two texts. But you could also be forgiven for not really noticing what was different because you weren't looking for differences in the first one, right? Like if you know you're going you're gonna to play the game of like spot the five things that are missing, you pay attention. But if you don't know that a new version is coming, it could be easy to hear mostly the same words and be like, yes, why are we reading this twice? This seems very important, but I have no idea what's going on. But just to catch you up, In that first passage, there are two women, Mary and Martha. And in the second passage, the updated, revised passage, there's only one woman, Mary. Now, on a day that we are celebrating women, you might think, let's not do the one that erases one of the women. That seems bad. But actually, there is scholarship now that suggests that Martha was inserted into the text as a way of, oddly, obscuring Mary, and we'll get to why. So uh, I want to just note that a lot of my understanding of what we're going to talk about today comes uh, actually from scholar Elizabeth Schrader by way of Diana Butler Bass, and if you want to go deeper on any of this, there's so much. You can google Diana Butler Bass, Mary Magdalene, or Elizabeth Schrader, Mary Magdalene and find a whole host of things. I actually um, ended up going down a rabbit hole of every individual podcast that Libby Schrader was on because it was so fascinating to me and her scholarship is so important. But to give some context, and some of this is gonna get technical for a minute, so forgive, but it's gonna get really exciting later, I promise, it's (laughs) worth it. So Libby Schrader um, is a, uh, she's a scholar in a field called textual criticism. And textual criticism is a, is a pretty technical field of biblical studies. Now, when we talk about understanding the Bible, a lot of what we're talking about here is challenging errors in interpretation, or er, errors in hermeneutics, which is to say, like, are you reading this right? Are you sure that's what it means, bro? Um, there's a lot of problems with the way that we approach the text, and so breaking it down with what we kind of have on the page and saying is that what it really means is important and there are some people who will get more technical than that and say like well this is really a translation error right the original Greek the original Hebrew says one thing but you've made a choice about how to translate it and that that choice makes it appear in English to mean something that it doesn't mean in the original language that's like one level deeper there's a level deeper than that believe it or not And that is not translation error, but transcription error. So anybody remember Gutenberg? All right, when? when When-ish? 1500s, 1500s. So like a minute after Jesus, like a little bit of time had passed since the beginning of the Jesus movement in the early hundreds, and then like 1,500 years later when somebody was able to like mass-produce copies of this book, right? So by the time we get Gutenberg, it's like, it's like a machine error. Like, ah, that printing press printed an error. Until then, there was a lot of human beings involved in just making multiple copies of the Bible. Every time you wanted another Bible, you needed a human being or a set of—a fleet of human beings— to sit down for hours and hours transcribing letter by letter. And if you've ever tried to copy something down and mixed up a few letters or numbers, you know that like human beings are not without error. There are so many transcription errors in our early codexes of the Bible that it has demolished the faith of some people who are really, really wedded to inerrancy. Because they look at our earliest copies of the Bible and they see just how many teeny tiny little errors and differences there are. Which is like not a big problem if you're understanding the Bible as a process of human telling and retelling of truths. But it's a huge problem if you're like, oh no, every, every cross T and dotted I was the work of God. God's messy then, y'all. Like God did not, God did not get it precise. So we have lots of different copies of these early versions of scripture, and the field of textual criticism is trying to understand, at this transcription level, what did, what did it say first? What were the earliest ones saying? And you might think, like, great, forget all the ones from the several hundreds, let's just go to the first one that was ever written. That would be lovely. That would be so lovely, and if you find it, Let everybody know, it's missing, they're all missing. Now we have copies that are the earliest copies we have, right? So this is the closest thing we have, but the earliest copies we have um, of, for instance, the Gospel of John, which is what we read from today, are from about 200 CE, right? So 200 years after the events, likely around 100 or more years after the, the events were written down. So we're working with someone else's copy of someone else's copy of someone's story. And trying to understand what did the original say is like a whole field of study. Enter scholar Elizabeth Schrader. Elizabeth Schrader, who goes by Libby, was actually a musician and an artist before she became a text critic. And she uh, found that she was really good at text criticism and before she even got all of her stuff published, which like as a master's student, she got this work on Mary published in the Harvard Theological Review, which is a really big deal. Um, so good on you, Libby. But she's obviously very talented, very skilled, um, and and her work has been really impactful. So she came in to these texts, looking at them with this keen eye, and uh, what Kind of occurred, transpired before she became um, a, a full blown scholar was that all of a sudden they had digitized, some biblical scholarship projects had digitized a bunch of these oldest copies of these scriptures that we had. So she had papyrus, she had as, as like a layperson access to Papyrus 66, which is the oldest copy of the Gospel of John that we have. And she noticed right away, that there were several times, so this is the first five verses in the uh, 11th chapter of John, and she noticed that there were a few times where the name Mary was changed to Martha. Now, in English, that seems like a really weird change, like that you'd have to like put a lot of effort into that, but in Greek, Mary is Maria, and the difference between Maria and Martha in Greek is actually one letter, And so these kind of like subtle changes, but turning Mary into Martha, and then adding another Mary. Later, Maria was crossed out entirely and swapped in the sisters, right? So she's seeing that at least in this tiny section of the oldest copy of the Gospel of John we have, there's a story that featured a Mary, and then suddenly also a Martha, Now, over the course of her scripture study, she came to theorize that the original scribe who had written this section of Papyrus 66 had access to two copies of John, one to copy and one for correction. And one copy had Martha and one copy didn't. And over the course of five verses, you see Martha kind of popping in and out. Now, Martha becomes a stable character in this story later, even in those other uh, potential copies. But in these five verses, we have this question, how many women are in this story? Now, what's weird is that we know a Mary and Martha, right? Anybody know Mary and Martha? Does those two go together in your imagination? Who's Martha? Shout it out. The not fun sister. Thank you, Danny. Martha's the one who has to do all the housework, so I don't know if it's really on Martha that she's not fun. Um, But yeah, in in the story in Luke, we have Mary and Martha receiving um, Jesus and the disciples into their home. And it's really, it's kind of a cool story. Um, And I've preached about it before. Uh, But Mary and Martha, it's their home, which is really cool. So it's like, all right, these women who are, like, in charge of their own lives, they are receiving the disciples and caring for them, and then there's this whole thing about, like, Mary sitting at Jesus' feet learning, which is really radical, and Martha's like, what are you doing? And Jesus is like, hey, it's cool. Uh, Massive oversimplification, but we're not talking about them today. (laughs) So we've got this other story about Mary, about a Mary and a Martha, who lived together, maybe in Samaria, or somewhere else geographically related to where Jesus was in that kind of uh, part of his trip, um, as depicted in the Gospel of Luke. (coughs) So that's a totally different geographic place than Bethany, which is where Lazarus lives. And John is very clear about where we are, right? Bethany— the village of Mary, which is interesting, right? Like that's in the text. That's very important. So so John is trying to tell us we're not we're not in Samaria. We're not in that part of the of the map. We're in Bethany. The other thing that's interesting about this is that like in this patriarchal society, if Mary and Martha had a brother named Lazarus, it would have been his house. It would have been Lazarus' house at which Jesus and the disciples were received, not Martha's. So we have some clues already that, like, these can't be the same, same family. And here in Bethany, in Lazarus' home, we have a Mary and an insertion of a Martha. But, like, is this Martha actually really there? Libby Schrader concluded this Mary is a different Mary. There is no Martha. This Mary is Mary Magdalene. Now, why would somebody add Martha to that? Well, we do a lot of work, mental gymnastics, trying to make sense of things that don't make sense to us, right, so it's easy to conclude that a scribe could have said like, oh, this must be Mary of Mary and Martha. I'm gonna harmonize with this other text. But Libby is also concerned that maybe there was something a little bit more intentional happening here, that, the scribe and a series of scribes and maybe a whole tradition of the early church was worried that folks might put together that this was Mary Magdalene. And to obscure her, her importance, added Martha, gave Martha the most important parts of the story, and fragmented Mary into multiple people. And I think there is a kind of a thing that comes up in my gut sometimes when we talk about this stuff where it's like, how can we not know who the basic characters in our Bible stories are. Like, why is that up for debate? But, but I, just, I just want to tell you a story. So I, many years ago, I knew a woman named Carol. And Carol is smart and funny and has a really dry sense of humor. And one day, I saw Carol at church in a purple T-shirt that just said, Aunt Carol. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so funny. I have an Aunt Car- Carol. And she looked at me and she was like, Everyone has an Aunt Carol, that's why it's funny. <laughs> to be honest, her sense of humor might not have been that dry. It's possible that she just didn't like me. But, <laughs> but it's true that, like, there are a lot of Carols, especially of a particular generation, right? Like, how many boomers are there named Carol? And I didn't just have an Aunt Carol, I also had a great Aunt Carol, for whom the younger Carol was named. So we all called, we in our family, in my immediate family, called Aunt Carol, Aunt Carol, and our great-aunt Carol, Auntie. So it wasn't confusing who we were talking about. Now, our cousins called Aunt Carol Mom, because that's who she was to them. So they called our great-aunt Carol, Auntie Carol, not Auntie, like we called her. So in my family, there were two women named Carol, who variously, according to whomever was addressing them, We're called Carol, Aunt Carol, Auntie Carol, Auntie, and Mom. Totally fine, right? In our family it was, not confusing at all. We had enough context to make full sense of who this was. But if you were to ask us to, for instance, write a long story that included both of these women along with hundreds of other characters, using multiple ways of addressing each of them, jumbled up with all their various names and titles, you could be forgiven for thinking there were actually five different women in the story. Or that Auntie and Aunt Carol were the same person. Now, if you really wanted to obscure the importance of one of the Carols in that story, it would also be really easy to do so by making it seem like she was A bunch of different people doing random stuff rather than one person doing a lot of deliberate important and connected things. And as popular as the name Carol was among boomers, Carol's got nothing on Mary. (laughs) How many Marys do you know? A lot, a lot, a lot. lot. Mary is the, the most popular U.S. baby girl name of the last hundred years. And it's more than double the second most popular name. And that's two millennia after the Marys that we're talking about today. Somewhere, there are somewhere, this is another, are you kidding me, Jonah, moment. There are somewhere between five and nine Marys in the Bible. Are are some of them playing hide and seek? I don't know. We literally can't tell. We're so confused. There are so many people referred to as Mary that we're trying to figure out if there's nine of them or five of them or somewhere in between. Now, the only women, not just the only Marys, but the only women that are named in every gospel are Mary the mother of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. So these are our primary Marys. So... So, we have Mary Magdalene, who's obviously a very important figure. Why obscure her in the Gospel of John? What do you know about Mary Magdalene? She was a sex worker, right? This is like the number one thing people think they know about Mary Magdalene. What else do we think we know about Mary Magdalene? Jesus' bestie, all right. One for the Mary Magdalene camp. Jesus' bestie. What else? She's a saint in the Catholic Church. First to see Jesus resurrected. Did I miss another one over here? Gives a decent pedicure. I like that one. That is a reference to the time that, that Mary anointed Jesus' feet with oil, washed with her hair. That's, that service has got to really have an upcharge on it. All right, so Mary Magdalene has been characterized as a sex worker, characterized that way not by the scriptures, but by prominent men in the church um, as a way to discredit her because they don't um, value sex workers, and so they think that that's like a really big dig. Um, also, like, where's Mary from? Anyone? Anyone? All right, great. No, that's great. You don't know. You actually don't know. Most people would say Magdala. Well, most people who are really embedded in this world would say Magdala, Mary of Magdalene. Somewhere from the modern middle uh from the modern day Middle East, yeah. But the the ideas that are propagated about Mary. She's from Magdala. She was a sex worker. Um she you know, was a woman of ill repute. It's a fun phrase. Um, just, Just a quick, shorthand way to discredit someone. Um, People didn't like her. So she gets really diminished. But in the scriptures, we have this woman who is prominent in Jesus' ministry, mentioned in all four of the Gospels, anointed him with oil in a way that really, like, sets up Jesus' burial and has allusions to his death and resurrection. She was with him at the cross when all his dudes bailed. She was at the tomb and discovered it empty. She was the first to see him resurrected. And he responded by sending her out. And she called him teacher, right? She didn't say, like, lover. She was like, teacher. Teacher whom I love, right? And he said, yeah, go teach. Go tell everybody, right? So she was sent out. Pope Francis has actually called her the apostle to the apostles which is a really beautiful admission from the Catholic Church. Mary Magdalene is the apostle to the apostles. So we have this extremely important figure in these four books. But when you think of the disciples, do you ever picture Mary Magdalene? I don't. When you think of the disciples, who what's the first name that comes to mind? Peter. Peter. Rocky. Peter the rock, all right? No, no kidding. That was his nickname, right? His name is Simon, Simon Peter. Simon Peter Petra means rock, right? So, like, there are uh, folks who have joked that, like, Jesus was giving him a nickname, may as well have been calling him Rocky, right? Rocky, you are the rock of my church. So, in these texts, we see Peter as this, like, extremely prominent figure. But in other very early Christian texts that did not make the cut to be canonized, Mary Magdalene is akin to Peter. And even in these early texts, Mary is always taking crap from people. Now, the texts themselves assume, like comes from the perspective that she was a visionary, a genuine believer, and a powerful, powerful leader in the early Jesus movement but that lots of people were threatened by her. Presumably because women in charge at that time were rare, and it was extremely difficult to be so. And so people were constantly questioning her authority, questioning her virtue, questioning her motives. And so these early traditions have said like Mary was at Jesus's side the whole time, and everyone was freaked out about it constantly. Now, one of the reasons that we think of Peter as so important, so prominent, is what's called the Christological Confession. When Peter and Jesus are having this exchange, and Jesus is like, do you really know my deal? And Peter's like, yeah, actually, like, I think you're God. <laughs> it's, it's more formal than that. It's very beautiful. It's like, you know, yes, you're the Christ, you're the son, the one coming into the world. Anyway, It's great the christological confession it's peter being the first the first to really recognize who jesus is why he's so important and what is going to happen for liberation of all god's people and jesus responds to that by saying peter my rock you are going to be the rock of the church right this is where peter gets his nickname gets his title petra and it's understood to be foundational to the church because he gets it. He sees Jesus for who Jesus actually is. Now that's true in the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, Luke. In John, we have a different story. A different first person seeing Jesus for who he is. Now this comes later in uh, John chapter 11 that we were reading the beginning of. And it is credited to Martha. Martha. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Martha replied, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live, even though they die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Martha replied, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, God's son, the one who is coming into the world. Now, it's pretty wild for John's gospel to have a woman sharing this Christological confection. That's like a big, prominent role, to be the first person to see Jesus for who he is in John's telling. It's a woman. But it's this minor character woman, right? Who the hell is Martha? We don't know. We haven't seen her since the kitchen. And the kitchen was in Luke's gospel. So John sort of strangely, is introducing this person who is very peripheral, bypassing all of these close disciples. And it is radical because it's a woman who sees. But we've shifted that woman to be somebody who isn't on the inside, isn't a leader. But Elizabeth is curious about this. Because these first few verses in chapter 11 would suggest that Martha is a later addition. So she started doing a lot of research, right? That's her job, she's very good at it. She's looking at all these early texts. Was Martha actually there? And not only is she finding that there are some weird discrepancies and more errors on all these codices, but also that other commentaries from very early don't reference Martha at all at the resurrection of Lazarus. It's just Mary. And, and I think this is the most fascinating, early, super early Christian Egyptian art that depicts the resurrection of Lazarus over and over and over again, features just one woman. This is Mary Magdalene, says Libby. This is Mary Magdalene. And so, if Mary Magdalene is the only one there with Jesus during this moment of Lazarus' resurrection, during this prefiguring of Jesus' resurrection, during this understanding of what it means to pass from death into life, it is Mary Magdalene who says, I get it, I see you, you are the Christ. You are the one who has been sent. And other early church fathers, including Tertullian, writing in 210 CE, credit this confession to Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. What does Mary Magdalene le- mean? Well, some people have said, oh yeah, it's Mary from Magdala, but it's not. Magdala wouldn't have been the place she was from. That would have been a totally different place than Bethany, and there was no place called Magdala at that time. There were only approximations in other places that would have made no sense. Magdala is not a place, it is a title. Just like Peter, the rock, who was recognized after his confession of Jesus as Lord, Mary becomes Mary Magdala, Mary the Tower. Mary of the towering faith, Mary whose faith rises into the sky and leads us, Mary the Tower. Now, perhaps there were competing movements within the early Jesus tradition. Perhaps there were some folks super on board with this towering figure of faith, Mary Magdalene, leading them toward liberation and showing, teaching the gospel. And there were folks who were like, what if it was just Peter, though? It would be really great if it was just Peter. And I don't believe that Peter and Mary Magdalene have to be in competition. It makes perfect sense to me that in his, his group of, of students, that there are multiple prominent teachers, that Jesus would elevate Peter the rock and Mary the tower, and they would together lead the church. But what happens if that tower is maligned, if that tower is cut down, if that tower is buried in the ground because people are too threatened by Mary the tower leading the way. Now that story, Mary Magdalene and the resurrection of Lazarus, it makes so many allusions to Jesus' burial and resurrection. There are all of these little Easter eggs in there, including like very obscure stuff. There's a word for handkerchief that is a Greek word borrowed from Latin that I'm not going to butcher for you, but it's an extremely like rare and specific word that wouldn't have come up a lot and doesn't in the scriptures. It is in this story of Lazarus and the story of Jesus at the cross. The author is trying to make these explicit connections, but is not explicitly calling out Mary Magdalene in this space. And Libby suggests that the author is insinuating, but not stating Mary Magdalene because it was so controversial and because people had rejected Mary's leadership so thoroughly. In Women's Theology Speakeasy, which is one of the many podcasts I listened to this week, Elizabeth says this, If the author of John sees how Peter is getting portrayed and then basically gives the exact same type of confession to Mary and then suggests that she is Mary Magdalene, that is a problem. Because then the same woman confesses Jesus is the Christ, anoints Jesus, stands by him at the cross, unlike the men goes to the empty tomb, is the one and only first person to see the risen Jesus, and then gets an apostolic commission from Jesus to go and tell everyone else about the resurrection. That is a very important character, she says. I'm suggesting that it is is the one person, the one Mary, that the author of the Gospel of John presented And she is not explicitly identified as the Magdalene in John 11 precisely because the author knows how controversial that's going to be because she's threatening to Peter. When I was at Wild Goose two weeks ago, Diana Butler Bass was sharing more and more of the research that's come out over the last year, again identifying that our most ancient sources of of commentary and art all affirm that there was one woman at the tomb, and that that woman was Mary Magdalene. And someone asked Diana Butler Bass, who is a very scholarly and put-together person, you have studied revival in the church. Do you think that this kind of information could potentially lead way to a new moment of reviving a Mary Magdalene tradition and breaking in like a new thread of Christianity that has been lost. And Diana received that question and then said, Yes! That's the most scholarly answer I'll give all day, but let me tell you all these other things, right? Like, this is bringing up possibility and potential. This is something that has been lost. The Mary Magdalene tradition, the leadership of a prominent woman in the Gospels, the power of Mary the Tower. What could our faith be if we had not only Peter the Rock to stand on, but Mary the Tower to look up to? What have we lost by those powers of patriarchy and supremacy culture that have cut her down and buried her, obscured her, pulled her apart to make her three, four, five different women. We need to find our Mary again, our tower given to us, named, anointed, sent by God. Now, when Elizabeth Schrader talks about this, she says, I hope this doesn't make people distrust the text. That's not my intention, and that's not what this project has served for me. She actually goes back to these very verses. She says these verses have fallen ill, these verses that have been altered to erase Mary. She says, though, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. She says that the truth is here, has been here, buried in death like Lazarus. But the women have been here also. And the women are ready to witness. There have been a lot of men who have looked at those texts for a long time. And it's not that they didn't see what Elizabeth saw. They saw those changes. Mary becoming a race, the insertion of Martha. And I thought, weird. And then moved on. <laughs> on this podcast, the women speaking about it said, what is it about women? Because women seem to see different things in the text. And I think that there is a hint of kind of like this magical, you know, women have this innate sense thing, Right? And Libby both affirms the value of women in the field and undermines that kind of mystical nature of it, saying, women have different lives and different experiences. And when we have access to authority and to the text and to these resources, we see different things. God loves diversity, she said. How can we think that we would understand the fullness of God's message, God's gospel, God's scriptures, if we only have a tiny subset of humanity interpreting it and and holding on to it and offering their understanding to the world. She said, we need more women in textual criticism as we need more people of various identities and experiences everywhere. And she said, just like Mary seeing Jesus for the first time, before any of the men around her, there are women ready to witness. They come together through the grace of God, and through that process, through their witness, new life emerges from the tomb, and we experience resurrection. Thank you, Mary the Tower. May we seek after you, may we see you where you have been obscured. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we thank you for the witness of each and every part of your creation. We repent of all the ways that we have or have made possible uh, the silencing and obscuring of people who have less power. God, may we own the power that we have to voice your truth, your beauty in the world. May we look to one another, may we, we understand and internalize the call that you have placed on every corner of your creation and the leaders who you have risen up to lead us. God, thank you for Mary the Tower. May we honor her witness. May we uncover her and so many others who can offer us a way home to your kingdom. Amen.